so teaching and Dharma teaching, which is the traditional word for offering practices and understandings that bring inner well-being and inner liberation. Um, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means truth, truth truth-telling, but also it means the path of awakening. Um, These teachings are primarily reminders. It's not like it's something new, but rather it speaks to what you already know. So let yourself listen in a way that's at ease. Don't have to take any notes, no quiz at the end. And listen to feel what might resonate for you as true. And if it's not, then just let it go. Over the course of this year on the Monday nights that I've been here, um, the theme has been true nature or Buddha nature, the nature of the awakened heart and awakened mind. Um, And it's a series of teachings that in Buddhist psychology are called the Ten Paramitas. Sometimes they're described as the perfections. Um, I like to think of them as the innate qualities of heart and mind that we can remember and awaken and embody in ourselves. And the Buddhist texts often begin with a lovely phrase that goes, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember your fundamental dignity, your fundamental goodness. I just came from a kind of strange conference. It was called the Evolution of Psychotherapy, and it was six or 7,000 therapists, the largest therapy conference in the country, at Disneyland. (laughs) Maybe they needed it, I don't know. And part of what my presentation had to do with is uh, holding up the... I did a whole bunch of presentations holding up the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual that has all the numbers that your insurance company wants you to um, pin on somebody to make sure that they can get treated properly. So it's all really about money and diagnosis and whether you have an affective disorder or a depressive disorder or a, you know, a bipolar disorder or a, you know, sleep disorder or all the, all the kinds of disorders. It's all about your diseases, right? And the thing is that that's how they see you. You're seen as your problem. Um, and I said, well, Buddhist psychology starts from the other end. It starts with the original dignity and beauty of every being and the diseases they, you know, are the problems. Everybody has problems. Anybody not have problems? You have your money back, right? Um, but Buddhist psychology starts by seeing the secret beauty behind the eyes of every being. And whether you're doing therapy, and I did a, I did a demonstration, which was kind of fun to do, 2,000 people there, and somebody sits and tells me their problems, and Ru's watching, okay, Jack, what is he going to do? You know? And I just started by holding her hand. Did that for quite a long time, and everybody went, oh... You know, we don't even need to talk about it. We just need to make a connection, feel like somebody's there with us. So I feel really grateful for these teachings and practices because they remind me and then the community and people that I care about and am part of, of who we really are.
and so over the course of these months, the different qualities of the awakened heart were described as joy and um, integrity and generosity and patience and dedication and truthfulness and all these different lovely qualities. And the last two are equanimity and love. And I believe that I talked mostly about equanimity last time, so fitting for our for our last class of the year, we'll talk about love. I remember this poem that begins, in the evening you will be examined on love. And it's a beautiful line, in the evening of your life or in the evening when you really reflect on what matters. Or I think of my teacher, Sri Nisargadot in India, who said at one point, wisdom says I am nothing, and love says I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. This very deep vision of who we are. Um, and so, really, we're talking about timeless qualities that are there in every human being. Um, and so when you sit, and you come and sit in meditation, we just did 20 minutes of sitting. For those of you who are new, congratulations, you made it through 20 minutes. Um, yes, there are practices to cultivate certain lovely qualities like compassion or forgiveness or presence. But mostly, the game is to sit and let the mind quiet and tend the heart and begin to listen to life itself, to the mystery of life. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And so you're not meditating in order to fix yourself, which I know you have tried, and you have a little success, but that's really not the point. The point is instead to become present for the mystery of your life in a loving way, with loving awareness. And those slides that I showed, those images, are connected in a certain way with the fact that this is the solstice, you know. Um, and every, every day, um, half a million pounds of cosmic dust land on the earth. Okay, what that means is that as our planet is circling our home star, it is also moving through the space of the galaxies around the arm of the Milky Way. And it's not just empty space, but there's all this cosmic dust. It's actually what you're made of, by the way, but we'll talk about that, your body anyway. Um, and all the time, cosmic dust is raining down on our planet. And all the time, at the same time, um, we human beings are going through this metamorphosis called, metamorphosis called birth and death, and so I've talked about the woman in Colorado, I can't remember her name right now, the artist who made the salt monument, this beautiful wooden um, chapel in which there's a huge lucite crystal um, that turns every 24 hours, filled with 7.2 billion grains of salt. And every um, morning, every, uh, let's see, Morning and evening, how does she do this? Yes. Every morning, as the priestess, um, she takes a, a little vial of 250,000 grains of salt and pours it in the top 
and makes a prayer for all those who were born that day. And then every evening, she draws off a little vial of 200,000 grains of salt for all those who left and who died that day. And she does this every day as a, as a priestess for the hundreds of thousands who come in and go each day. I mean, this is us. This is human incarnation, and it's so mysterious. And the earth is turning, and tomorrow night maybe, or the next one will be the longest night of the year, and then everybody around the world in their own way, or almost everybody, finds some celebration for the light to return. Here we are in the northern hemisphere for right now, and whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or, you know, whatever holy holiday it is, there's something about the return of the light. As my poet friend Dina Metzger writes, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and begin again. And there's something about life that wants to renew itself no matter what. It just does. And it's completely trustworthy. And you are that life. You're constantly renewing yourself. In the time it takes to say one sentence, 50,000 new cells are born in your body. Hello, I'm here, you know, working for you. All right? It's so mysterious. So then what are you going to do with this? How are you going to navigate this, this mysterious human incarnation? After his enlightenment, as the story or the myth is told, the Buddha sat there for a while under the tree of enlightenment. And then it said he gazed around the world um, with the eyes of compassion that could see at great distances. And when he looked across the, the wide world, he saw beings everywhere who wanted to be happy, but many of them doing the very things that would create suffering. And tears began to stream down his cheeks. When they hit the ground, it said they turned into the goddess Tara, who became the bodhisattva of compassion, to, to offer compassion to the whole world. But he saw that beings want to be happy. And then he said, I have found a way for us to be happy as human beings. Let me walk as he did um, for the benefit of beings and remind them of what's possible. So for 45 years, he walked the dusty roads of India, encountering one person after another and saying, you too, hey, here's a way to awaken. Here's a way to be happy. So meditation is not a grim duty. There's a certain way that for certain people, spiritual practice gets mixed up with, you know, vitamins and cod liver oil or something. You have to do it, right? Um, and it's not that. It's a reminder that we can quiet ourselves and talk to the heart and listen. What really matters? I have this letter I've read before that came from a middle school student when their class uh, came to Spirit Rock. And it's written in that sort of tentative middle school script with bad spelling and all. Dear Jack... Our middle school came to your center to learn meditation. 
At the time, I didn't think it mattered much, and I just wanted to sit with my friends. Now my mom and I are having some really bad fights and stuff, and I don't know what to do. I go out on the roof and sit, and I don't know why, but I remember back to what you taught us and the little bit of meditation I learned, and it helps me not be so mad and upset. I can even talk to her sometimes afterward. We should learn this stuff in school, you know. (laughs) And it wasn't very long. It was like an hour or an hour and a half. You can do this. It's possible for us. And the teachings of this perfection of the heart, of loving kindness, which are expressed in the in a beautiful way in Buddhist teachings, in the Metta Sutta, the Sutra of Loving Kindness, um, where the Buddha speaks of loving all beings or developing a heart of kindness like a mother holding her most beloved child. Um, They were taught, actually, uh, when some monks and nuns had gone into the forest to practice and there were all kinds of the sounds of wild animals and ghosts and spirits or whatever one wants to listen to in the forest. Um, And they came back and they said, it's scary out there. And the Buddha said, I will teach you a practice that calms your fears. Listen, my friends, we need this right now. (laughs) There's a lot of anxiety running around in our culture. And there's a lot of people trying to make you afraid. Um... You know, and the wild animals, as one of my teachers who lived in the jungle said, I'm not worried about the animals out there, the tigers and the, you know, bears and things like that. You want to see a dangerous animal, look in the mirror, right? But anyway, so there's a lot of anxiety. And the teachings of loving kindness are an antidote to this. And the phrase is, to develop a loving kindness for oneself, for those we care about, for those beyond, for the neutral ones, for all those who are difficult, for beings everywhere. And the phrase I can hear Sylvia Borstein, my colleague here, because she loves this phrase, omitting none, leaving none of them out. This is uh, the biblical... Corinthians expression, if I speak with tongues of men and angels but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a clanging gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. In the end, what really matters is the question. Omitting none. Omitting none. And we live in a time where there's so much divisiveness and fear and racism and also, you know, the destruction of the environment. And there's the quality of loving kindness, omitting none, means to bring them all in, to listen to every part. Zen poet EQ says, every day I hear the priests chant the sacred words. They should learn to read the love letters sent by the wind and the rain, the blossoms and the moon. That the world itself, that mysterious world you are seeing, all those amazing pictures, is talking to you, saying, here you are on this extraordinary planet. Please listen. Please pay attention. And then the instruction is to love 
omitting none. Now, I just came back also from teaching with Ram Das. Um, some of you, many of you probably know him, know who he is anyway, teaching retreat with my beloved Trudy, and we were there. It was a tough assignment, but we were on the beach in Maui with a few hundred people. And Ram Das is now 86, and he ha- he's in this wheelchair after his stroke, and he has aphasia, so he speaks somewhat slowly with some difficulty, but his mind is clear, and he's become... Mr. Love, basically. He just loves everything, um, omitting none. And it's really clear um, because when you go to his home, he has this great big altar in his living room, and there's Buddha and Kuan Yin and Mother Mary and pictures of Gandhi and, and um, you know, Ananda Mayama and pictures of um, all these great saints and um, Guadalupe and Jesus and his guru, and various other great teachers and so forth. And for a long time in the middle, it was a picture of Dick Cheney. And he said, you know, this is my practice. Um, as Father Greg Boyle, who works at Homeboys Industries, said, sometimes you have to work with Jesus in his least recognizable form, basically. <laughs> but Ramda says, you know, I love it all. I love this room. I love the people in front of me. I love the sky. I love, I love everything. And he goes, he keeps saying it as a thing. You think, oh yeah, right. Somebody says, I love you. And you go, yeah, that's a good moment, but how long will it last, right? They have other feelings. And he just goes on and on. And pretty soon you start to get in this field of love and actually believe him. And he says, I love it all. I love the, you know, the carpet here. And I love the lights and I love the darkness out there and the stars and I love the colors of your hair and the bald ones too. I love you all, you know. And in fact, my friend, I've told this story, Mickey Lemley, who's a wonderful filmmaker, heard Ramdas say this and said, Ramdas, you love everything. How about this dirty carpet? And he said, oh, I love it. I love it all, you know. So a couple of weeks later, in a beautiful gilded frame, comes a piece of really dirty carpet from the place where Ramdas was teaching. He says, okay, Ramdas, put this on your altar next to your guru. You know, and he did. You know, there's his guru, and there's Gandhi, and there's Buddha, and, you know, and there's the carpet, right? Here you were, born in this human incarnation, right? No one knows quite how we got here, but we have it. And what are you going to do with it? Um, what was born into you is love. And lots of things born into you, but one of the central qualities born into you as a human being. And all you have to do is kind of look at the gaze of a newborn and, and their mother, as, you know, assuming a healthy birth and not a lot of trouble in that regard. Um, and it's just natural to us as human beings. But we forget it. So this is a passage from my one of my favorite figures in Los Angeles, Father Greg Boyle. He has a new book called Barking to the Choir, which I recommend. And his last one, called Tattoos on the Heart, is one of my favorite books of the last decade or two. Um, and he talks about, he was the founder of Homeboy Industries. And he talks about working with gang kids and all kinds of other stuff that he does in the barrios there. Very, very moving. But anyway, here he's working with a group of kids 
you know, who've been in these gangs. And he said, all right, I got to talk to him one at a time. And this day, at the line of the next kid, the next homie approach, it's all swagger, you know. He's walking in, his head bobs side to side, make sure everybody's seeing how cool he is. He sits down, we shake hands, but he seems unable to shake the scowl etched across his face. What's your name, I ask you? Sniper, he sneers, you know. Got a gun in his pocket. Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Snipers, come on, dog, what's your name? Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oh, yeah, dude. But, son, I'm looking for birth certificate here. Come on, and we sit quietly. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening, but there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. Okay, padre. Napoleon. He managed to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when you're Jefita calls you. She doesn't use the whole nine yards here. Come on, mijito. Do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he has not visited in some time. His voice, body language, whole being are taking a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet, I lean, lean in. Sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzales to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. <laughs> so who are we? You know, we have all these roles and all these things that we do, but what was born into us? What is our nature? And when we remember that love, that, that underneath there is a vulnerability and a, a beauty and a kind of courage, both to be touched by the world and to respond to the world, then we find both tears, not just the tears of what happened to you in your own personal trauma, but something that are called the tears of the way. The heart's just touched and it's poignant, life itself. If you search for the awakened heart, you find, says Chogyam Trumpa, that you're looking into space. There's nothing tangible, but if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, what you find is tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the world, you feel a kind of sadness that doesn't come from being mistreated or insulted or impoverished. This experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is this tender heart, the tender heart of a warrior, that has the power to touch and heal the world. So you get quiet and you really listen and you remember this is in you. But also what is in you is a child of the spirit, is the spirit of joy. This is also born in you. 
and especially for this solstice time of renewal. This is why you can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in the spring and 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens holding them to their skinny chests and painters going blind paint more and composers going deaf writing great symphonies. As we give ourselves to life, it floods through us. It will renew itself. As Pablo Neruda says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's something that wants to renew itself each time the globe, you know, goes around the sun. All right, let's start again. So a couple of things to say as you finish up. The first to say is that this is one of many, many practices. This is a practice of seeing the awakened heart. And for some, it works beautifully. How many people had some pretty interesting experiences doing that? Or is your hand? Yeah, a lot. But it doesn't work that way for everybody. And that doesn't mean that the, that the ones that it didn't work for sort of like get a D minus in meditation and have to do it over again. It just means it's not the right practice for you at this time. There's 20 other beautiful practices. So don't use the practices to judge yourself. You do that enough on your own. You don't have to add to it. Um, but for those who did it, um, 10 minutes, all right? I mean, people raise their hand and they say, I've been married for 34 years and I never looked at this person like that before, <laughs> you know? Um, or sometimes at the end, you know, it's so clear that you're not this body, that you're life without boundaries, that you know this truth. And how many has had some kind of experience that wasn't just limited to the body, where you could see something more deeply? Yeah, lots and lots. Thank you. Um, what we did in the simplest way is again this reminder that what you seek doesn't have to be the result of, you know, six years in a cave in the Himalayas, you know, and seeking and meditating practice. And those are all good things to do, I guess. But um, that what you seek is who you are and who we are. And the real game is to quiet the mind and tend the heart and be able to see with new eyes as we start the next year ahead to see with beginner's mind. Now what's true is that we also carry within us, as I talked about the tears of the way, the fires in Sonoma and Napa and now in Ventura and all these people who are lost their homes and the refugees crowding the world. There are more refugees than at any time since World War II and actually we're just about to exceed that number. You know, the the terrible things in Syria or in Libya, or I could just start naming the places in the world, um, or the people on our streets who are homeless, or our, or our crazy racist poverty prison system that locks up millions of people, or the loss of species. Um, this is also true, that if you're born into the human life, you will have pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame. Um, don't despair. Despair is not the game, but rather let yourself see 
through the heart. And what you just did was an invitation to step out of the small sense of self, the sense of separateness, what's called the body of fear, and see with the eyes of wisdom and love. Um, and then as you do and move through the world, you can reach out and mend that which you can help. You can plant beautiful seeds. You can respond to your brothers and sisters. You know? Um, and I was reading about um, training for um, companies and communities around sexual harassment and Me Too. You know, and there's not a woman that I know that wouldn't say Me Too. So it's really part of the structural um, oppression of women that's been worldwide for such a long time. Um, but what I was reading is that most of those trainings are useless. And the most effective training um, is actually the training uh, for bystanders to intervene. It's not about those people, but it's about all of us taking responsibility to say, did you mean to say that? Do you really, you know, to step in not in a way that exacerbates it, but to get trained in a way with your heart that says, hey, this is not how we treat people. Did you, did you mean to, do you really want, you know, that there are ways to do this, and this is what we, how we mend the world. And you look at the world, and it turns out, that as in most cultures, they turn out to be all your brothers and sisters and your uncles and aunts. I mean, Auntie Hillary and, you know, Uncle Donald. And that's just how it is, you know. Every family has one, right? <laughs> but what matters as you move through the world, how do you touch it? Because this is what's given to you. So again, here's Father Greg. I can find the right passage in here. Uh, I forgot to mark it, but I know it's somewhere along here. Andre was abandoned by his mother when he was nine years old and left homeless for a couple of years. He has always been a clear example for me of the soul's deepest longing to inhabit its truth. The one thing he wanted more than anything was to improve his vocabulary. He'd been a gangbanger, but now, you know, he was trying to learn something. I was enumerating all the things I needed to do today, he'd say, and then he'd add, enumerating means making a list. If he agrees with me, he says, I concur. He actually told a room full of shrinks during a talk in San Diego because Father Greg brings his homies to talk to the judges and the therapists and to Congress, for that matter, um, at home during a talk in San Diego that at Homeboy's Industry, he had managed to metamorphose himself, stop, metamorphosize himself. Then he told them that means change, right? <laughs> So one day he came to work and plunked himself down in my office. Last night, I was walking home from King Taco, he says, you know, on Soto. Anyways, before I get to my canton, I'm crossing in front of that tiny park. You know the one. There's a half. There, there, uh, <clears throat> you know the one. I see an old man lying on a bench. He's either asleep or trying to sleep. There's a half full 40 on the ground in front of him, one of those great big beers. 
And the old guy, well, he's shivering because it's cold. So you know my favorite sweater? I nod yes, though I don't know what he's talking about, but I don't want to derail him. Well, I was wearing it, and I took it off, and I laid it over this guy. He didn't wake or notice. And for a moment, Andres enters a sort of trance, and then suddenly he's shaken from it. Hey, I'm not telling you all this so you think I'm like all that. He stops again to think, and some long-held emotional stirring comes to the surface, making it momentarily hard to get the next words out. Nah, I'm telling you all this because I know that bench. He gathers himself. I've been on that bench, you know. And this is us. This is us in this world. Um, What do we do and how do we respond when we are touched by the human beings who are around us? Love is mysterious. Nobody can say exactly what it is. It's mysterious like gravity. What's gravity? Well, it pulls things together, right? And love is cosmic allurement, like gravity that bodies at a distance want to come together. I think it's the memory that we were all together in the Big Bang, and we miss each other, you know? (laughs) And there's all different kinds of love, you know? I love chocolate ice cream. I do. It's pretty great, you know? And you can love certain sports and things like that. It's a kind of love. Or there's sort of businessman's love. I'll love you this much if you give me that much in exchange, and it's all right. You know, and then there's romantic love. You've all tried. You know how it is. <laughs> and it's beautiful for a time, you know, and then it changes. Um, but all of them are really the longings to connect, to make something a part of us, to feel a connection with one another. Rumi calls us love dogs. We're all love dogs seeking love. And then there's that phrase, it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's how it is. You know, we need each other. Right? But the deeper love, which you are just allowing yourself in many of your cases to feel and sense as you sat with another is the love for no reason, the happiness for reason, the joy for no reason. Um, It's because it's who you are. You are loving awareness that was born into this body and is going through a rather interesting incarnation. And then you'll leave it at some point. You'll see, wow, that was what an incarnation that one was. Hmm. Check it out. You'll see. And the nice thing about love is that we catch it from one another. You know, you can catch it. I remember going to Calcutta to visit my teacher, Deepama, one of my teachers. She was one of the greatest um, meditation masters within the Theravada tradition, wherever these Buddhist teachings come from, of India and Burma and Thailand and so forth. Amazing meditation master. And I went to visit her to get some teachings, and also I was having a hard time. I'd been teaching for about 10 years, and I was kind of burned out. I just on the road a lot and seeing people all the time, and I just needed some renewal, and should I, am I doing it right, should I? And so she gave me some lovely teachings. And then before I left, and she was this tiny little woman who had all kinds of magic powers, but anyway, this tiny little woman... First, she reached under her mattress and gave me some money to make, get a gift for my mother. 
right? That's how it was, you know. We were in this funky apartment in Calcutta, and it was summertime in Calcutta. And then she said, well, I have to bless you before you go. And so she threw her arms around me. Bengali's hug, it's really kind of wonderful. And then she started to do a blessing, and she kind of put her hands all over my body, and she was saying loving the phrases of loving kindness, may you be safe and well and so forth in, in Sanskrit and Pali, and touching me like this. And I'm just standing there, and pretty soon I start to smile, and then she keeps doing it. And I start to smile more and more and more. By the time she was done, I was kind of drunk. <laughs> thank you, Ma, thank you, Ma. And I go out in the street, and it's boiling hot, and I try to find a taxi, and he's crowded, and this was the old days before India modernized in Calcutta. You know, there were cows wandering down the street, and a man pulled rickshaws, and I get an old taxi, and it's incredibly hot, and we're in, stuck in traffic for an hour and a half or two hours to get to Dum Dum Airport, which is the name of Calcutta Airport, I tell you, right? And then I get, and it's not air conditioned, there's long lines, I'm waiting in the long lines, finally I get in my flight, and now it's a couple hours later, sitting my flight to Bangkok, and I get off in Bangkok, immigration, and there's more long lines, and then Bangkok is sweltering. The entire time, I'm just grinning like this, you know, <laughs> In fact, for three days, in sleep, I'd swallow, wake up, I'd be smiling. I don't know what she did to me, but it was like, zap, you know. We catch it from each other. And it's like the, the story that I read sometimes of the woman who was a chaplain in the hospital who goes around to bless the hands of everyone in the hospital twice a year, the surgeons and the nurses. But she says... What I try to do is go down in the basement and find the people who wash the dishes and, and clean the linens and clean the toilets. And now they wait for me to have their hands blessed. Someone will say, this is the most meaningful thing that happens to me all year. That someone comes as a chaplain and does this beautiful blessing. So it's not necessarily a huge thing, but it's this very simple gesture. And yet, and yet... These, this begins to have the power to change the world. You become more fearless, more hospitable, more gracious, more willing to see what's possible, because if you can't see it and hold the possibility, you're lost. Gandhi again, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall, always. Think of it, always. And there's something about the vision of what's possible for us as human beings. And it doesn't have to be big things, you know. Um, tonight, as you leave, there are going to be people holding baskets to collect donations for the soup kitchen on B Street, St. Vincent de Paul, which we've been doing for 25 years on Monday night. And it's a beautiful thing. I used to love to go down there and just give them a whole bag of cash. Now we have to do a check thing or something. Yeah, everything gets more official. But, but anyway, it's still a beautiful thing to go down and hang out and also to go down and help cook or, you know, help serve or do that. Um, not because they need you. I don't know if they... But because it, it does something for your own heart is why. And so it doesn't have to be great big gestures Here's a poem. When I knelt to face him, 
He said my name, not the one he and my mother had given, but the long-forgotten one he'd called me as a child, Lem. Her name's Emily, but he called her Lem. Lem, he said, so matter-of-fact, as if half a century had not passed since anyone called me that. No sweltering station wagons of summer, no minnows and fishhooks, no father chasing a porcupine to offer a daughter a swatted towel full of quills. I wheeled him back to his room like he asked, although that's not what he meant. Back through the hallway gauntlet of slack and spittle, past docile women in open back shifts left unsnapped for easy hygiene, past the unmistakable smell of shit, to his room with its narrow bed like a child's. It took two kind aides with arms like oars to lift him. They were men on a schedule, so many to tuck in by dark. Still, they paused for a moment as he settled, as the sheet floated quiet and white. They waited like parents do before they turn off the light. And there's so much tenderness in this poem of caring for someone. This is as much love as some grand gesture that you have. And then people say, well, yeah, um, you know, you see these images of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and there's one upstairs um, with a thousand arms, you know. And, and then you hear these vows, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, Kuan Yin Bodhisattva. But you say, hey, wait, I only have two arms. How can I do this, right? Put your arms in the air, please. Look around. This is Kuan Yin. This is her. This is it. Yeah, how about that? Hallelujah. Never underestimate the power of love. When I look at that doorway, that gate, says Ramdas, I see a force that makes the Pentagon seem like children's toys. It's really the, the only power that can match the power of violence or the power of fear in the world. It is the one that lets mothers pick, off, pick cars off children. It, it allows people to do extraordinary things because it's who we really are in the end. And so what matters? You know, in your personal relationships, who in your life and your world wants to be seen with the eyes of love. In your relationships, in your community, who in your community wants to be seen with respect and love? in all the dimensions of the world. When you bring the quality of love, there's a listening and a care, an accompaniment, 
a responsiveness, a gesture of respect, and a kind of protection. Who wants to be seen with the eyes of love is also, like all beings, wanting to be protected. It's such a mystery, you know. I like to read uh, this story from Sharon Salzberg when she was teaching over at Jerry Brown's in Oakland. He had this place called We the People, and she taught a day of loving-kindness practice. And there was a woman who came up and complained, and it said, it feels so mechanical to wish people well in my mind. You know, I don't think it's having any effect. I feel very dry to me. Sharon said, well, just keep doing it, like planting seeds, go out and walk. So the woman went out to walk on the plane, train platform across the street at Jack London Station. And as she was walking, doing her metta and feeling like a failure, down the long train platform, a train had come in, came a guy with a briefcase and a suit, sort of in a hurry. He looked kind of uptight. And she looked at him and she said, this guy looks really uptight. And he thought, okay, I'm supposed to be doing loving kindness. May he be well and safe. And then he walked right up to her. And he said, ma'am, he said, I never do this, but you have such a kind face and I'm facing a really difficult situation. And I'd just like to ask if you would pray for me. And then he walked on. So you don't know. You don't know what it does. But it's said that as you cultivate loving kindness... There's a whole set of blessings. Your dreams become sweet, and you fall asleep more easily, and you wake in contented. So it's a beautiful practice. And angels and devas will love and protect you. And men and women will love you too, if you're interested. <laughs> and weapons won't harm you, and poisons won't work. And if you lose things, they're always returned to you. It says, I don't know. And people will welcome you everywhere and your thoughts become more pleasant and animals will sense this and love you and elephants will bow slightly as you go by. <laughs> your voice becomes sweeter and your babies are happy in the womb and growing up. And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. And the world becomes filled with beautiful beings when you, when you practice in this way.